Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up... President Trump's new law overhauling the U.S. tax code went into effect this week. Winners right now are big corporations. But what about taxpayers? Experts weigh in on short-term effects and long-term impact. People who have paid more in taxes will get more out of that. I think it's bad for nonprofits. An insight on whether the new bill will actually create jobs. He got the best Christmas gift ever. A pardon by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Made a vow to myself and my God that I was never going back to prison. The South Jersey drug dealer turned million dollar business owner who's impacting re-entry policy. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed by Republican Congress and was wholly opposed by Democrats. It's championed as a major win by the Trump administration. This is the biggest tax cuts and reform in the history of our country. The bill kills the individual mandate, a key part of the Affordable Care Act, and lowers the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent. The GOP claims this will bring jobs. They also claim families will save money, but Democrats and their supporters have spoken out, calling the tax cut corporate welfare, arguing the bill could leave a $1.5 trillion hole in the U.S. budget over the next 10 years. So what can families expect? Will there be more cuts and who will get the windfall with me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is otis bullock ceo of diversified community services a nonprofit that works on behalf of children and families especially the most vulnerable also we have douglas weber an associate professor of economics at temple university and finally on the phone we have nikki johnson houston a tax lawyer and business owner welcome to flashpoint i want to get each of you to provide a brief overview of your understanding of the new tax reform law from your perspective, how huge of a deal is this? And I want to start with you, Professor Weber. What could this mean for the economy? It's a big deal. The total cost of the bill, we're looking at between a $1.1 trillion cost over the next 10 years or as much as a $2 trillion cost. And that's a lot of money, money that has to be paid back at some point. It adds to the debt, which means that we're going to be paying interest on that for a very long time. And so, in you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, that's you know, money that we're going to be paying in interest that is not going to be able to be used for things like social services or investing in any number of other ways. And so, Nikki, we've heard that businesses and individuals could save some money here. The jury is still out. What's your assessment at this point? Not to sound like a lawyer, but to sound like a lawyer, it really depends. They give in one hand and take away from the others. One part of the new law is there will be an increase of the standard deduction 
that you're allowed to deduct from your income when you're calculating your tax liability. And that will increase to about $24,000 from the $12,700 that it is currently. So that's quite a substantial change. But what people aren't talking about is, on the other hand, what they're taking away is the personal exemption. It's completely being wiped out. And for a family of four, like a married couple with two dependents, that's taking away about $16,000. We won't really know what this looks like until next year. What a lot of people, I think, don't quite realize yet is that when you file your taxes this year, it will not impact your taxes that are being filed. It will impact you next year. People will see that um, when they're having their withdrawals from their paycheck. It's very business friendly, very business centric. People who have paid more in taxes will get more out of that. There is some good news though for working families. There is an increase in the child tax credit, which a lot of your listeners may take advantage of. And that will go from 1,000 to 2,000. But I can't disagree with the professor. That money does need to be made up somehow. And those cuts are going to be felt probably by many of the people that Otis's organization supports. Perfect segue to Otis. You represent some of the most vulnerable people. Will this help? No, it it hurts significantly. If you take the standard deduction, you don't get the charitable um, contribution deduction. Before, maybe about 30% of tax filers were eligible or or qualified to take that deduction. Because of this law, that's going to go down to about 5%. So this is bad for nonprofits? I think it's bad for nonprofits like mine, but it's also bad for for middle-class donors because it's going to lessen your ability to take that deduction. So now it's leaving the donor class to be for the wealthy and not for the middle class. Um, they also suspended and, and cut out the um, individual mandate. That's going to raise the cost of health care. One of the things we didn't mention, I will say, corporations are going to get a huge tax cut. The GOP says that this will make this country more attractive to other to global businesses and will therefore bring the jobs. Will it actually draw more companies and more jobs to the United States? It, it will, but on the margin, if you're uh, an international company, you know, uh, moving more jobs to the U.S., this will make it cheaper to do that. So the incentives are absolutely in line with creating more jobs. But when you look at the evidence based on past tax policy, how big of an incentive that is, it's just not likely to be that big of an incentive, which is why everyone that's doing a serious projection of the, the long-term effects of this of this bill says that – you know. There are going to be positive growth effects, but they're going to be really, really small. We've already seen corporations giving bonuses to their employees. We've also heard that Wells Fargo and some other companies have already promised to raise the minimum wage. I have seen no evidence that corporate tax cuts translates to increased jobs or um, higher wages for um, for low-income um, employees. But there, there's plenty of evidence that, you know, putting money directly into the pockets of middle-class and low-income household pockets does um, boost the economy. From a business standpoint, this really goes back to Reagan when I was a child and really trickle-down economics and what do you really believe Mm. drives the economy. So for the Republican standpoint, the idea is, is that cutting these taxes will allow people to grow their business. And I think there's some truth to that. 
but I think it's overstated. If I get to keep more of my tax dollars, that means that my family has more money. It does not necessarily mean that I will take on more employees because there has to be a corresponding rise in a need for my services, not just that I'm keeping more money, but that I have more demand. And so unless we see that corresponding need for demand, businesses aren't necessarily just going to start hiring people. You know, Doug, you mentioned that, you know, look, universities, too, they're going to be hurting. Oh, absolutely. And it's a perfect example of the problem with ramming this tax bill through as quickly as um, as the GOP did. Unintended things that because, you know, the, the tax bill was being written at midnight and, you know, changes were being, you know, written in in the margins, parts of the of the tax bills to add a – I think it's a 21 percent tax on people at universities who are making more than a million dollars. It turns out that the language in the bill that actually made it through only applies to people at private universities and not at public universities. That is not what they meant to do. It was just a complete mistake based on the language. And I have to imagine that there's probably dozens if not hundreds of similar mistakes. To be fair – with the Affordable Care the Act, they did the same thing sure. and they had to make multiple corrections yep. of the bill. And I, I wanted to ask Nikki, I mean, as a tax professional, you're going to probably stumble upon all sorts of problems that your clients are going to have to muck through in the next year's tax filing. We're all very concerned. We're literally having to learn the tax code all over again. And there are going to be instances of unattended consequences that will probably involve a lot of litigation going forward or going back to the government and asking for from the IRS really opinion letters to get some kind of clarification about what they really mean in certain situations. Um, Another point that I think um, people spent a lot of time talking about was also about, you know, the state and local tax deductions. Mm -hmm. It's going to disproportionately impact um, high income jurisdictions like the New Yorks and like the Californias, a lot of the blue states. One of the things that if you've noticed on the news the last few days before the end of the year, there was a rush um, on taxing authorities in high taxing jurisdictions for people to try to prepay their high real estate taxes. Yes. And that was what? Now it's capped at 10,000. Now it's capped at $10,000 as before it was unlimited, but Pennsylvania people found out very, they had a nasty surprise, which is you're not allowed to prepay your real estate taxes here because you haven't had the assessment yet. And so that ends up being a disadvantage. But I mean, a lot of this is about our philosophical differences between the Democrat and Republican parties and about how people want to govern. But the sad part is, is that the American people are having to go through this experiment. And you know, we saw this a few years ago in Kansas when the governor, Sam Brownback, mm, yeah. decided to cut taxes and they are still trying to recover from it. And in fact, um, they voted out a lot of conservative Republicans, voted in more moderate Republicans. And basically they got rid of a lot of what he did because they ended up um, having problems with shutting down infrastructure programs, yep. shutting wow. down schools. And we are actually doing the very same experiment, but on a national level. I disagree on one point. I, I don't think it's an unintended consequence. This is exactly what they intend to do, the, the Republicans, to, you know, to blow a hole into the budget, 
to increase the deficit to give them cover so they can cut more programs for poor people. That's the big fear because somehow, some way, you got to pay for this. And the most vulnerable are the folks that usually take the brunt of anything like this. Any thoughts on the fact that this is not something permanent for individuals? Well, so I would say this one shows where the uh, the priorities lie. Given the choice between making the tax cuts permanent for individuals or corporations, they chose corporations. Will um, this spur more small businesses? Some, but not nearly Some. enough to justify the cost. I do think it it will. Tax policy does interfere with that, but also regulation. So I think from the Republican standpoint, they would counter this conversation and say, look, we believe that businesses big and small are the job creators and that the more money they can keep, the better jobs that they can create. And I think to them, they think that 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 is a better investment than creating a permanent underclass, which they believe is created by the social safety net. But I think we also have to be asking the question of really who can afford to bear the burden. And corporations aren't bad. I represent them. I'm a small business. But I think in a lot of ways, we can bear the burden in a way that the poor and the underserved cannot. As we wrap up this conversation, I want to give each of you an opportunity to summarize who you think wins and loses from your individual perspective. Winners right now are big corporations to a lesser extent, small businesses. Personally, I would have rather the bill been much more focused on small business than corporate. Who loses mostly are going to be people down the line, our children and grandchildren and us 30 30 years years down the line. You know, I think middle class donors and the donor class loses and nonprofits, social service nonprofits like mine um, lose. And I do think that is an unintended um, consequence of the uh, the tax law. Yeah. Finally, Nikki. I think business is the big winner. This is what they have been calling for and asking for for a very long time, for decades. I guess from my point of view, I want to see if if this ends up being a case of be careful what you wish for, because we may all have to pay for it in the end. Thank you to Doug Weber. Thank you to Otis Bullock. And thank you to Nikki Johnson Houston for coming on Flashpoint to talk about this issue of the news. Next up, he went from drug dealer to running a million-dollar business. I was in the game for 18 years, so I know about product. I know about marketing. A New Jersey ex-offender makes headlines after getting the Christmas gift of a lifetime from Governor Chris Christie. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one of the issues that get Philly residents hot under the collar is discrimination against men and women who have paid their debt to society. One New Jersey man is setting an example. Tracy Syfax was a drug dealer for nearly two decades and racked up multiple convictions. He even did a bid behind bars, but after he was released in the 90s, he changed his life, building a million-dollar business, and most recently... The Obama White House champion of change honoree received a pardon for his crimes. Tracy, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Trey. Thank you for having me. Congratulations. How do you feel? It's been, what, a couple weeks since you got pardoned by Governor Chris Christie? Yes, actually a couple of days um, before Christmas, he granted my pardon. 
Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. It took you how many years to get this pardon? So I've been home for 25 years now. Wow. This whole idea of 25 years, you've been in absolutely no trouble. You're an upstanding businessman, employer of many. Talk about who you were 25 years ago to who you are today. Muhammad Ali says if a man thinks the same way at 50 as he did at 30, he's wasted 20 years. You know what I mean? I spent 17 years of my younger years in the street, in the drug game, in and out of prison, until I just finally got to the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and just made a conscious decision that I was going to change my life around. So I came home um, in 1993, made a vow to myself and my God that I was never going back to prison, and I was going to do whatever I needed to do to change my life. And since then, I've been able to, um, you know, create a couple of couple of million-dollar businesses. Um, I was honored by President um, Obama in 2014 yes. as a White House champion of change for the work that I've been doing in reentry and helping people um, that are coming home from prison who have that same struggle. So... I don't only believe that I wanted to do it for myself. I believe I wanted to provide those same opportunities for the community as, as a whole. So um, I've spent my 23 years now in the business as a strong advocate for ending mass incarceration, for real reentry forms, using entrepreneurship tools, because I believe um, it was entrepreneurship that really springboarded me to where I needed to be in life and gave me those opportunities that I would never have got if I was still working for somebody else. One of the things that I love about your story is your persistence. You wrote a book, From the Block to the Boardroom, mm-hmm. that tells your story, you know, you've how you evolved over the years, um, but also how you have experienced some of the discrimination um, that many people who um, have done their time and paid their debts to society and want to re-enter and build a life, they struggle. Yes, and, and I know I've heard these horror stories. I know people that have been working for a number of years at certain jobs, good jobs, paying good money. Um, they go for an advancement. Um, they do a more deeper check into their background, come to find out they have a criminal background uh, record that they didn't put on the application, model employees, and next thing you know, they're out of a job. I spent um, close to seven years in some of the toughest prisons in the state of New Jersey. Everybody that comes home don't want to come back to jail. They want to be productive citizens. Um, but so many times they come home and those opportunities are just not afforded to them. And um, when that happens, they end up going right back to what they used to do. So I believe that um, if we give people second chances, sometimes third chances to get their life together, these are real um, smart on crime initiatives because we can say, okay, well, let's hire 50 more cops to patrol the neighborhood. So that money that we spend on 50 cops, we can spend on someone actually helping them get their life back together so that they can be productive citizens and taxpayer citizens. Yeah, because, I mean, and this has been a bipartisan idea in a way. If you want to keep moms and dads working, help dads and moms be able to support themselves. Absolutely. In the state of New Jersey, it costs roughly around $50,000 a year to house a nonviolent inmate. You know, $50,000, that's a job. So, you know, we need to make the decision as taxpayers. Do we keep propping up this system that's a complete failure? Because now, when I look at it as, as a 23-year businessman, I'm paying into that system. I pay a lot of money in taxes. I own a lot of property in New Jersey, so I pay a lot of money in taxes. So now, as a businessman, I look for a return on my investment. I'm investing into that system every year with my tax dollars. So now I look for a return on my investment. And having someone um, stay in jail for five years only to come home and go back to jail in eight months after spending $250,000 to have them in jail for five years. That's a poor investment on my tax dollars. And we should all be outraged behind that. You know, those who are 
or um, have siblings or relatives that's connected to the prison system and those who do not. Because those who do not, you, we are still paying into that system. What was it about your mindset to say, you know what, I'm going to start my own business? And I'll say this because I saw and we've seen a lot of people who were drug dealers mm-hmm, absolutely. with the entrepreneurial spirit. Absolutely. Got it. Flip that. And they become some of the best managers and sales mm-hmm, folks. Absolutely. They're like some of the best. Listen, I was in the game for 18 years. So I know about product. I know about marketing. I know about customers. I knew about security. I knew about organizational skills. I had all those skills before I became an entrepreneur. So those are transferable skills. So I teach entrepreneurship now to ex-offenders. We have a program called Reentry Ventures. I believe that some of our best talent are languishing in prisons all across this country, um, men and women that are capable of running Fortune 500 companies, um, but have just done it the wrong way. And if we can take those same transferable skills and use them in a positive way, I believe a lot of folks that are coming home from prison have everything that it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. Was it different in 93 as far as like the way people with uh, criminal records were treated versus now? Do you see it? Finally, I see it shifting, but is it a drastic shift from 25 years ago? Yeah, because we didn't have band of box. We didn't have criminal justice reform. People wasn't talking about mass incarceration. You know, now employers have come around. When I was at the White House um, working with the Obama administration, we started what we call the... um, Fair Chance Business Pledge, which started out with like 30-something employers, including my company. And before he left the White House, we had over 400 companies that agreed to hire people with background records. Hershey, Google, all these Fortune 500 companies are saying, listen, we need to work in this area and we need to work in this space in order to give people these second chances. Because once again, these are real smart on crime initiatives and giving people those opportunities is how we really reduce crime in our communities. So talk about your business a little bit because you employ about half of the people you employ are ex-offenders. Ha- are ex-offenders. Include myself. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The boss, man. The boss. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's um, very important. And I'm in the construction business. I'm in the real estate development business. And I also do the um, consulting company um, with the uh, reentry ventures where we teach the entrepreneurship course. So it's all about giving people opportunities and giving people chances. It's never, ever, I, I thought that it's never, ever really been about me. It's always been about what we can do for other people. What keeps you p- pushing and wanting to help more people? I think um, the stories. You know, I've helped plenty of people start their businesses. Um, just recently, we did the pilot program in Washington, D.C. It was a brother there named Lorenzo Stewart who came in in a wheelchair, who was an ex-offender in a wheelchair. And he told me, um, when we started the course, he said, Trace, I don't know if they discriminate against me because I'm an ex-offender or they discriminate against me because I'm in a wheelchair. He said, but either way, I can't get a job nowhere. This entrepreneurship course is my last hope and my last opportunity. Um, after 12 weeks of teaching that class, Lorenzo finished top three in our class. He was so good. He was so committed to it. Some of the people that, that ran the program, the nonprofits, um, helped him get his first loan, which was like $45,000, where he bought three vans, and hired five employees. And this is all since 2016. And now he's in business in Washington, D.C., doing the paratransit business. He's seen the need of how tough it was for him to get around D.C. in a wheelchair, so he started a paratransit business. And he's doing very well, and he's giving back to the community. So I think that what keeps me going. I think that what motivates me. Describe it in words, that emotion, when you see, like, a Lorenzo doing well. I'm a grown man, but, you know, grown men cry. How did you feel when you found out that Governor Chris Christie was going to finally, finally get that pardon on his way out? 25 years is a long time. 
I've had a lot of pinnacles in my success being at the White House was one, being the first African-American to be um, awarded Entrepreneur of the Year by the Princeton Chamber of Commerce in 51-year history. Um, I was honored. I was really honored to get the part. But, you know, I just feel as though there's so much work to do in this area that this is just another step. And my last question for you, Tracy, as we wrap up today is we have so many, I mean, hundreds of thousands in our region Mm -hmm. uh, of people who have criminal records. Mm-hmm. Um, who are struggling. Mm-hmm. So give some advice. You just can't give up. You have to want it as bad as you want to breathe every morning. And if you really believe that every day that you can get up, that you can go out there and just try and put one foot forward and just never look back, I think you can be successful in this country. And, you know, if I can do it, I really believe um, anybody else can do it. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for being on Flashpoint. And congratulations. Thank you. So that much. is one of the best Christmas gifts. Thanks for having me. Next up, it's not a day off, it's a day on. To build awareness about Dr. King's legacy. Plans for the upcoming Greater Philadelphia King Day of Service and what you can do to get in on the action. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week it's all about the Greater Philadelphia King Day of Service. On January 15th, tens of thousands of volunteers will roll up their sleeves, transforming this day off into a day on. The headquarters for this effort will be at the historic Gerard College, where 5,000 volunteers will get to work. I'm here with the day's founder and organizer, Todd Bernstein, president of Global Citizen. Todd, welcome to Flashpoint. Good to be with you. The 23rd annual Greater Philadelphia Martin Luther King Day of Service is the biggest in the nation here in Philadelphia, right? That's right. It came out of an idea that was a conversation between me and uh, my then-boss, Harris Wofford, who was a close colleague of Dr. King's and John Lewis. Harris and Congressman Lewis, when Harris got to the Senate in 1994, co-sponsored the King Holiday and Service Act as a way of expanding opportunities that day, both educational to build awareness about Dr. King's legacy and how it continues today, but also as a way to engage people, groups, communities by identifying community needs and rallying around to try to solve those. For those folks who don't understand the scale that this King Day of Service has evolved to, where did it start with the numbers and where is it today? Our first effort was in 1996. We had about 1,000 volunteers. That was really just in confines of Philadelphia. We expanded into the suburbs. We eventually focused on the tri-state area, and we've gone from from that 1,000 volunteers to an expected 150,000 volunteers on January 15th. In all, more than 1.5 million over the 23-year period. Wow. And so you are the organizer of this effort, but it takes a lot of volunteers who are part of this. What types of projects do people do um, when they participate in the King Day of Service? That's an important point to make, which is this isn't so much about global citizen planning events. It's really about 
empowering people and organizations throughout the region. Those projects range from everything that you could imagine. This year's overarching theme is the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign, which started in 1967 and continued after he was assassinated on April 4th of 1968. And as an example, We are going to be in the signature project at Girard College focusing on the issue of uh, food justice, food access. 60% more Americans, more than 41 million people live in poverty. One in five children in the United States are suffering from hunger. So on the 15th, Mayor Kenny will lead us in a project that will range from working with Share Food Program, um, packing and distributing meals that will go through hundreds of nonprofits in the city. We're also trying to empower young people to get more involved in this issue. They will be growing vegetables and not just during the the warm months, but also inside. So we're going to be having volunteers construct grow light stands that can be used in the winter, pallet gardens that are literally made out of the product pallets that you see in Home Depot or Lowe's. We'll also be making compost bins. There will be workshops around food justice and hunger. So there's always a, you know, an overarching message uh, of the importance of this day and uh, to really underscore the kind of life and struggle that Dr. King lived. People are going to be spanning out all across the city. Give me some examples of what folks can sign up to create in their own communities? People can go to our website at mlkdayofservice.org to sign up or call our office at 215-851-1181. And you can choose from a potpourri of projects that have been entered into our data system uh, all around the region, everything from legal and health clinics to teach-ins, beautification projects at hundreds of schools and recreation centers. Uh, Philadelphia Fire Department will be out in force in all 63 fire stations promoting fire safety and giving out smoke detectors. The projects really range based on the creativity of the individual or group that is, uh, that is planning them. And for many, it's, it's a project that will occur on King Day but will be sustainable and will serve as a springboard to ongoing community involvement. And I know that, um, you know, there's going to be a job fair for individuals because, you know, Dr. King also stood for economic empowerment. Dr. King said that if a, if a man doesn't have an income, he has neither life, liberty, nor the opportunity for the pursuit of happiness. Jobs are an economic justice issue that Dr. King fought for. So we will be having our, our seventh annual Jobs and Opportunity Fair at Girard College. 500 job seekers choosing among some 25 local companies with available jobs. People should go to our website at mlkdayofservice.org. Thank you so much, Todd Bernstein, founder of Global Citizen and organizer of the MLK Day of Service. Thank you for being on Flashpoint. Thanks, Jerry. Well, that's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think using the hashtag Flashpoint. 
You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at the times of challenge and controversy. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.